Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. today's episode, we meet Jeff Jackson, whose latest book, Destroy All Monsters, has been called The Last Rock Novel, and what Ben Marcus called a book that surges with new century anxiety and paranoia, a clear-eyed, stone-cold vision of what's to come. The book deals with an epidemic of violence sweeping the country where small punk rock bands are their targets. It's a literary mystery with music at the core, and fittingly, it has a side A and a side B. You actually have to flip the book over to read an alternative track of the same story. After Jeff wrote the book, he joined a punk rock band, and you will hear a few of the haunting lyrics in his band's songs on the show. Jeff starts first with a scene in Destroy All Monsters where a bustling queue of teenagers wraps along the building's perimeter, bodies pressed tight to keep a claim on their territory. It's the night the music comes home. That's how the concert is built on the red flyers plastered along the telephone poles that lead into Arcadia. The notices accompany cars through the few blocks of dive bars, all-night diners, and ethnic restaurants that constitute the ragged downtown. Drivers cruise the streets in search of parking spaces, gliding past ticket holders streaming toward the show, and the onlookers loitering under streetlights. Normally people come here to make the most of their hours away from jobs the wheelhouse wheelchair factory, the tire warehouses, and construction gigs. But this crowd is flocked here for the homecoming show of a local band whose songs have gone viral. Their attention is riveted on the theater, its facade lit up like a beacon. A bustling queue of teenagers wraps around the building's perimeter, bodies pressed tight to keep a claim on their territory. They've camped out on the sidewalk for hours, dressed light in anticipation of spring weather that hasn't arrived a sampling of what passes for an underground scene in this conservative industrial city. The strip mall goths, the mod metalheads, the blue-collar ravers, the jaded esthetes who consider themselves beyond category. Everyone in line has imagined a night that could crack open and transform their dreary realities. This is it. Jeff Jackson is a novelist, playwright, visual artist, and songwriter. His second novel, Destroy All Monsters, received rave reviews from the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and NPR. Pitchfork chose it as one of the best music books of 2018. His novella, Novi Sad, was published as a limited edition art book and selected for best of 2016 lists in Vice, Lit Reactor, and Entropy. His first novel, Mirror Corpora, published in 2013, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and featured on numerous best-of-the-year lists. His short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, and he's a playwright of six plays. He holds an MFA from NYU and is a recipient of several fellowships. Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, Destroy All Monsters. We're going to do some more reading from this during the show here today. But before we do that, I'd like to uh, talk about uh, before this book. Uh, You were living in New York City, right? 
Yeah, I lived in New York for uh, 12 or 13 years. Yeah, and went to NYU for your MFA? Yep, that's right. So how did you get from New York City to Charlotte? And, and I guess you call Charlotte home now? I call Charlotte home. I've been here about 12 years now in Charlotte, too. So uh, Charlotte's definitely home. Um, What's the difference in the riding life in New York and the riding life in Charlotte? Well, the the riding life in Charlotte, I have a lot more time for it. Okay. One of the reasons for leaving New York was, um, even though I love the city and I love living there, it was so expensive and there was so much hustling that needed to be done to pay the bills that there was just very little time for my own writing. Mm. And I really reached this point where I felt like I could be a writer or I could be a New Yorker and I couldn't be both. And uh, moving to Charlotte, which is sort of the lower cost of living and uh, just having being able to have more free time for writing was huge. I actually, uh, two weeks after I moved here, I started writing my first novel, Mira Corpora. Um, before that in New York, I've been writing short stories. Yeah, you started out with, with short stories and your Mira Corpora book uh, was well received. Tell, tell us about that first book. Yeah, so that first book was written, uh, was written here in Charlotte. It took me a long time to write it. It was about four to five years. Uh, of writing it, and it's a book that traces um, sort of a runaway kid over his life from ages about uh, eight through eighteen, and sort of the different uh, sort of different adventures he has. It's a slightly uh, hallucinatory, dreamlike book, and he encounters <laughs> sort of colonies of feral children and cryptic you graffiti. You seem to have that in your writing here. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, that's this, there. There are some there are some themes that sort of uh, and images that pass throughout uh, pass throughout all the books for sure. Um, yeah. And that was one of the that was sort of what got it started. It's almost like you uh, had some peyote in your stash there when you're writing some of this stuff. Yeah, it has that quality a little bit to it. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I like uh, I like I like things that have a slightly surreal quality to them, and a mm. sli- I like things that are grounded in reality, but that have uh, some dream logic to them. So that they're sort mm-hmm. of operating both ways at the same time. They're not completely fantastical, mm-hmm. but that they also have something that's heightened to them. And to me, I mean, especially given the world we live in right now, um, to me that sort of feels more true to my own experiences. Well, you wrote a, another, I suppose it's a novella, Novisad, is that right? Yeah, yeah, Novisad, which is, uh, which is a novella that was uh, partly the original draft of uh, Mira Corpora was much, much longer than what was published. And there was a lot of material that I ended up cutting. And some of it uh, ended up fashioning into this uh, novella, Novisad. And there's a lot of new material, and it's sort of very, very much sort of reconceived. But it's also a sort of sister book. Yeah, well, I didn't hadn't read Mira Corpora yet. I've read Novi Sad and I've read The Story All Monsters. Novi Sad I read just one morning quickly. You kind of get into it, you catch your attention, and you're wondering about this world, which has been blown up, right? <laughs> yeah. So that that so Novi Sad is definitely sort of the most apocalyptic of all yeah, the things I've written, yeah, and sort yeah. of in some ways probably uh, yeah the most fantastical. All right. Well, I'm going to have you just to give the readers uh, a little bit of what's going on in this world. Which, if you look at the cover, there's a kid on the cover with his hands in his pockets but part of his head's cut off in the picture yeah yeah it's a photograph where the top has been ripped off so yeah kind of symbolic of the the time that he's living through I suppose yeah yeah and and there's a lot about sort of photographs in the book and memories and things not quite being complete so all right if you would pick up uh, on page 25 and I want you just to read a little bit and then I'm gonna have you read one other section this just runs like it's a short piece but it gives a, a feel for what's going on here Okay, so yeah, this is uh, on page 25. This, um, the narrator here has been, uh, his friends have gathered uh, at this uh, hotel, and they're, they believe that the end of the world is coming very soon, and so they're, they're gathered and waiting for it. Maybe the moon is full tonight because my mind is racing and I can't fall asleep. I navigate a path through the slumbering bodies and slip outside into the night air. I climb the fire escape to the hotel roof and find Hank smoking by the clothesline. He passes me the joint and together we stare out at the broken grid of scattered light that constitutes the city. You know, he says, I bet everything on this. It's kind of perfect here, I say. Hank nods. This is our moment, he says. In the distance, we're startled by the clattering ricochet of an explosion. We search the landscape for some sign of the blast, but there's nothing just the waning echo. What if it's not the end? I ask. The sound must have shook something loose inside me because I wasn't expecting these words to rise to the surface. 
Hank stubs out the joint on the metal railing and tosses it over the side. Spoken like a true survivor, he says. I always suspected you were the hardiest cockroach among us. You'll outlast us all, won't you? I turn away, ambushed by the unexpected note of bitterness. I'm not like that, I mumble. Relax, Hank says. You're the only one I'm talking to about this stuff. He drapes his arm around my shoulder. Listen, you've been on the street longest, he says. I know you understand the importance of what we're doing here, what this all means. Sure, I say, but I'm not sure that I do. Hank leans into the night, his features swallowed by the intermittent blackness. Don't worry, he says. It'll be the end, all right. One way or another. All right, Jeff, there's a line in here that kind of drew me in and made me think that this this one character uh, is going to outlast the rest. Uh, I always suspected you were the hardiest cockroach among us. <laughs> yeah. Who can survive the apocalypse except a cockroach, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. Uh, now, as you, as you go through this book, I mean, bizarre things happen to these people, but in a world that's you know, bereft of humanity and, you know, things are little is left. It looks like, uh, you know, the Serbian wars after they just bombed everything to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want you to read just even a shorter piece uh, from when the main character finds himself alone. It's on page 63. Yeah. So this is um, all of the all the narrator's friends have uh, sort of disappeared, gone different ways, and he's still at the hotel. I still have some of their clothes. The smell of musty perfume, sweet sweat, and spicy deodorant clings to each outfit. A sad but intoxicating mix. On sunny afternoons, I occasionally empty the closets and climb onto the roof of the blue hotel. I hang these remnants along the crisscrossing wires of the clothesline. An assortment of Hank's t-shirts, blues blouses, Lena's dresses, Rupesh's slacks, Marcus's boxer shorts. They're suspended so I can see the shapes of the bodies they once contained. The clothes are my signal to my friends that it's okay to return. It's been months since I've seen any of them. I've stubbornly remained the sole resident of the hotel, figuring somebody has to stay put if there's any chance we're going to reunite. Or maybe this is more like a seance. I lay back on the roof and stare at these reanimated artifacts. As the wrinkles and pleats shift in the warm breeze, I feel less lonely. The rustling of the outfits conjures whispers of faraway conversations. The seams of a shirt catch the golden light, brightening the worn threads that hold the fabric together until they resemble shining sutures. So Jeff, you've got a, a real qu- literary quality here um, in, in, in a very dark environment and I'm just curious as to how you put yourself into a position to think in a way to write about something like Novi Sad. Uh, something like that honestly comes fairly naturally. I'm not really I'm not a hundred percent sure sort of where uh, fishing for these ideas comes from. Mm-hmm. But your, your I, muse is camped out somewhere though. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's camped out somewhere. I mean, I always related to David Lynch, who's, mm-hmm. you know, such a genial person and makes such dark art and people people would ask him, you know, where where do these ideas come from? And yeah. he would just say, you know, mm-hmm. my my muse is in the darkness and um, yeah. I think that's just tends to be in general sort of where uh, where my work gets its energy from, but it's also, you know, it's important for me within the sort of darker subject matter that there's a lot of tenderness, that there are moments of connection, there are moments of community. Now, you write about, um, you know, young adults, teenagers, young adults who are going through conflict and uh, assuming Mira Corpora as well as Novi Sad. Yeah, absolutely. And then you bring that forward and destroy all monsters because in the piece that you read at the beginning of the show, uh, you're talking about you know, a bunch of teenagers standing outside waiting to get into a music venue, and you describe them as the uh, strip mall goss, the mod metalheads, the blue-collar ravers, the bathtub shitting punks, the jadis. That I mean, 
So do you know these people? <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, you know, there, there, um, you know, there's all sorts of different uh, subcultures out there. Right. I, I'm also playing, uh, mixing up some subcultures for the book. There, there are not so many mod metalheads probably out there, but um, <laughs> right. but there well, are a few. There what is few. a mod metalhead anyway? Oh, yeah. uh, you know, someone, uh, someone who's into metal who has a sort of mod aesthetic too. Uh, okay. You know, all sort right. of mixes those. All right. And we're going to talk about your sort of entry into the punk world before the show's over. Sure, right, yeah, right, absolutely. Right. But, but back to Destroy All Monsters for, uh, for just, just a moment. Let's talk about uh, the book itself. Um, where did the idea for this book enter your mind? So the idea came from, uh, came from an image I had about 10 years ago. A lot of these books are very slow gestating, and they start sort of in my notebooks. And uh, I had the image of this uh, small-time band being shot on stage by a member of the audience and in a really sort of small, dingy club. And that image just sort of kept, kept germinating. I kept thinking about what if this sort of became like an epidemic um, of shootings across the country. And sort of that was, uh, those are the images that I, that I followed into creating Destroy All Monsters. One of the somewhat alarming things about writing this book is that when I first started it, it was a very sort of surreal idea, this idea of shootings happening in music venues. Mm -hmm. And reality's really caught up to, uh, caught up to the book with the shooting at the Bataclan in France and other things like that. And it's been a bit unnerving There's to write. One, one in Florida as well. Yeah, one in Florida, one in Vegas. Yeah. Um, you know, to start out with something that felt very surreal um, that's ended up, reality's ended up catching up to it somewhat. How did it feel to put it out there, did you feel like you were, were you at all hesitant about adding to that narrative in any way after after the shootings that took place in these different venues? Well, I mean, I did, you know, it made me look closely about sort of how I was writing the violence um, and just sort of make sure that I felt like I was doing it in an ethical way. Um, and it was sort of a check on that. But no, I mean, I still felt, you know, I still... Um, I still sort of backed the book, and it felt like it was important uh, for the book to be out there, and that didn't uh, that didn't change anything. But it was it did sort of change how it's been read by readers, and that's uh, that's been interesting. Mm. Well, the inside cover says it's an epidemic of violence that's sweeping the country. Musicians are being murdered on stage in the middle of their sets by members of the audience. Are these random copycat killings, or something more sinister at work? So it's a mystery to some extent. Too. Yeah, no, it's a mystery. I mean, it's some people have called it a crime novel, which I right. think is interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is there is this sort of a question of like what's causing the epidemic, what's causing these different shooters in different parts of the country, and it's actually and it's not just gun violence too. There's um, there's knives, there's bombs. Um, what are causing? You know what's behind these killers and what they're doing, and that's definitely one of the things that sort of moves the plot forward. And different characters have different theories on that as the book uh, moves along. I almost feel like I need to go back and read it again because I might have missed some things along the way. <laughs> it's not a traditional mystery, and that, that, that you're stepping alongside Inspector Clouseau right, yes. to to, <laughs> to 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 maybe that's not a typical mystery, but, but Perot maybe Perot Perot sure Perot, yeah, not, yeah. Clouseau is not, we know what he is right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Okay, let's talk about the title, Destroy All Monsters. Yeah, so the title comes from, um, is inspired both by, there's an old Godzilla movie called Destroy All Monsters. Um, there's also... Uh, Godzilla is not on the cover. Here. Godzilla's yeah. not on the cover. Um, you know, maybe maybe on a foreign edition I can get Godzilla on the cover. Yeah. But uh, neither is Rodan. Um, yeah. But it's also the name of a... Uh, of a punk band from Detroit that was this sort of infamous sort of art rock band that included um, a number of people who wanted to become famous artists like Jim Shaw and Mike Kelly and Carrie Lauren. Um, and I like the title because it was has a very sort of rock and roll energy to it, but it also sort of begs the question as you're reading the book, like, who are the monsters? Like, that's one of sort of the animating questions, I think, um, for the readers. Uh, sort of like the Detroit rock band, um, that band had a very sort of pulpy uh, exterior to what they were doing, but it was mm -hmm. also sort of a very, there's something very sort of fine art beneath it, and sort of sort of similar to this book, like it has a, a, you know, a real sort of hopefully propulsive plot and a little bit of a pulpy sort of crime mystery story, but there's also like a mm -hmm. lot of literary quality sort of, you know, beneath the mm -hmm. surface too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm looking at the uh, cover art here. Did you have a, uh, a part in that? We've got a picture here of a 
it could be, you know, a young woman or a young man, the hair standing up, short crop, a little bit earring, a gun point. Well, I don't know. I see the fingernails now, so maybe it is a woman. Yeah, so. it's a young. Yeah, it's a yeah. young. It's a young I, woman. I had to look for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a young woman. Um, or that, I'm not sure. It could have been. I mean, a guy could paint his fingernails too, right? Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, they uh, the publisher had most of the control over the cover. Um, I did ask if they would make it um, a young woman because a young woman is the main character in the okay. story. Right. And so Z- that, Zini. Yeah, right. Zini. So that was important to me that that sort of um, that she be represented or you know some figure that would suggest her presence beyond the beyond the cover. Um, but yeah, it was important to me also that the A side and the B side, because the book has two sides, like an old vinyl single or yeah, cassette. I, I was getting to that, the unconventional uh, look here. I, I mean, I so thought, the, yes. the two covers relate to each other, too. Yeah, yeah. so I was going to flip it over. Yeah. I've got to flip it over here. Um, it's not just part A and part B in the book as you're reading. You, you've got to turn the book over to yep. see. And on the back side, and I'm just noticing this, uh, you see Z- a female well, the from, woman, the, from yeah. the back, a woman from yeah. the back, and the and the gun is smoking. Now, right? Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. right. So we've had a lot of killings on side A. So now we're going to explore sort of a different reality on side B. Yeah, is yeah. That? I mean, I wanted also it to sort of suggest that um, side A, like that. Ideally, you should read side A first and then read side B. And so side A is sort of like before, and side B suggests a, an after, and sort of also hopefully gives like a little clue to the reader that like start with side a no we don't we shouldn't read it in reverse to find the secret meaning should we like no i mean you can't it's designed revolution Uh, no it's (laughs) (laughs) it is the book is designed so that it should work from either direction if you read it from right from either side you read it from you'll find a surprise on the flip side but i think it definitely works best if you read it from side a and side b in some ways, if you you know if you're interested in doing a reread, it might actually work really interestingly right, to start right. start with side B for the reread. <laughs> okay, you really have me confused then. <laughs> Let, let's talk a minute about the dedication. Um, I look in I look in the books that, of the Oscar come on the show. Their dedication usually it's to a family member or a friend or something. In your case, uh, I was a little surprised to see that the dedication was to Johnny Ace. Which you describe as the first rock and roll casualty. Yeah, yeah. yeah so talk, talk about that a second. Yeah, so Side Ace John, uh, is dedicated to Johnny Ace. And Johnny Ace was an early rock and roll singer um, and one of the first rock and roll figures to meet a tragic death. Um, he had had a number of uh, hits. And on Christmas Eve, after a concert one night, he was challenged to a game of Russian roulette. And he took the bet and he lost. Mm. and uh, shot himself and the song he had just recorded days before that happened is this uh, really ghostly ballad called pledging my love and that song immediately went to number one and sort of made him a legend so mm. he's one of the first people to die a violent death in rock and sort of become a legend because of it and that song pledging my love is thought to be a haunted song that bad things happen to people that cover that song in fact it was the last song that elvis recorded before he died and so um while I made up a lot of band names in the book, uh, I actually used the real song Pledging My Love in the book. And it's, mm. it was important to have that, that Johnny Ace and Pledging My Love and Side A sort of be like the one actual real song. And it plays a real important plot point in the book. Okay. Well, let's, let's read a little bit more from Destroy All Monsters. So this section, begin, this section is uh, narrated by, uh, by Zenny, who's uh, the main character of Destroy All Monsters. It was as if I knew it was going to happen. A dull feeling of dread had been gathering. The signs were getting harder to ignore. At the end of the street, I discovered a drum kit at the bottom of an overgrown ravine. Piece by piece, someone had hurled it down the steep precipice and abandoned it there. A bass drum, snare, and cymbals were scattered in the shallow stream bed, surrounded by tangled vines, rocks, and fallen branches subtly rerouting the flow of the rippling water. My first thought wasn't to marvel at this strange sight, but to wonder why the rest of the band's equipment was missing. I told my boyfriend Sean about it, but he didn't see any deeper significance. Zenny, he said, it's probably some angry kid who didn't like his birthday present. It looked expensive, I said, like a set a pro might play. Something about this image made Sean laugh. Zenny, he said, drummers are practically feral. The best ones aren't even housebroken. Maybe that's just the guy's new practice space. I tried to shake it off, but I kept thinking about how much had changed in Arcadia since I'd met Sean. 
Over the past three years, the economy tanked and the wheelchair factory shut down. The Carmelite Rifles moved away to cash in on their success, and it wasn't long before several of the city's best musicians followed their lead, betting their fortunes lay elsewhere. The music scene's heyday faded like a dull mirage. Nobody was surprised when Arcadia's only record store closed its doors. Outside the broken ear, the owner left piles of records, cassettes, and compact discs free for the taking. Weeks after the locks were changed and the windows covered with construction permits, the stacks remained untouched, blackening in the weather. The clubs were still doing business, but there wasn't much excitement now around the shows. Most local musicians had little ambition, low standards, less taste. The bands that used to stun audiences and rampage across the stage, Deconic Parkway, Jerusalem Crickets, the Forty Thieves, had all broken up. Their members branched off in dozens of musical directions, forming projects that felt increasingly detached from their origins, part of a family tree of mediocrity. Nobody in the scene played for any stakes. People still came together in the night to get drunk and share gossip and hook up, but the songs meant less and less. I was collecting more music than ever on my computer, but I rarely listened to it. I realized I was getting more pleasure from amassing the files than actually playing them. I'd spend hours obsessively accumulating an artist's entire discography, then promptly forget about it for months. Whenever I managed to spin my newly acquired songs, they rarely came across as more than modest diversions. It was hard to make myself believe any of it mattered. More troubling, even my favorite music was barely able to hold me in its sway. One afternoon, I carried my hard drive full of songs through the street to the ravine. I let the plastic device drop and watched it careen down the weed-choked embankment and crash into the creek below. The battered black rectangle rested at the bottom of the stream, surrounded by the rusted drum kit whose punctured snare drum was now a nest for a family of sparrows. Several open red throats peeked from the spiral of dried grass and bent twigs, waiting to be fed. That night, I dreamed about a group of boys emerging out of the darkness, following a path through the woods, one after the other. The boy with the shaved skull, the boy with the scraggly beard, the boy with the black overcoat. They each held an instrument, bone flute, rattling gourd, stick strung with a single metallic wire. There's a strange determination to their lurching steps as, they, as if they were in a trance. As they came closer, it became clear that they were covered in mud, their clothes and faces caked in the stuff. Or rather, it was blood, a wet redness that refused to shimmer in the dim light. It obscured everything except the boy's lidless stares. Their eyes were white orbs, the exact shape of the absent moon. Jeff, that's a good example of the uh, dream sequencing that you do uh, in the book. And I think you're, I mean, you're bringing out something here um, that actually kind of carries through the book a little bit when we get into these different music venues and there's some uncertainty about what's going to happen. And and you're looking at the faces of all the people that are there as if they know something's going to happen, but they're drawn to it anyway, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So t- tell us, let's just tell the listeners here a little bit about some of the characters. Zini, whose narrative you just read, uh, somewhat of a troubled youth, uh, but she connects with uh, a person who's in a band. Yeah, right? she connects with uh, with Sean, who becomes uh, who becomes her boyfriend, and she's someone who's really obsessed with music and goes to shows a lot, but. Um, isn't someone who's ever been in a band or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But she loves music, and it resonates with her. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, then you have another character which survives to side B, right? Yeah, yeah, so there's there's also, uh, so there's there's, uh, Zenny and Sean, her boyfriend. There's also Florian, who was uh, Sean's uh, best friend growing up. And uh, he and Sean had been in bands. Uh, for a long time together, and they've sort of gone their own separate ways, and now they're in separate bands. And um, then there's also uh, 
Eddie, who's sort of the unofficial manager of Florian's band, and he's someone who becomes involved with uh, Zenny sort of down the, down the line. So just to give the listeners a little bit of feel about what's going on in these hellish circumstances that are the lead up to them, I'm going to have you read from uh, day one and day nine uh, of the book. Yeah, so this is uh, sort of the beginning of the epidemic, and it's also, uh, also narrated by Zenny. Day one. Nobody paid much attention to the account on the news of the first killing, but it made me feverish with anticipation and dread. I felt dizzy as I listened to the report of what happened hundreds of miles away. My forehead was dotted with droplets of sweat. Sean couldn't help noticing how distracted I'd become. As we sat there together on the couch, I stared at the television screen long after he turned it off. Zenny, he said, are you okay? I tried to nod my head, but my body wouldn't respond. You're so pale, he said. What's the matter? Sean was genuinely concerned. He rubbed my cold hands, trying to stimulate some circulation. I wanted to tell him, but I was overwhelmed by the multiplying images of violence rattling through my mind. The teenage boy walking into the local battle of the bands in the rented veterans hall and pulling out a handgun. He aims his shot squarely at the group on stage. The drummer tumbles backward off his stool. There's blood on the wall. Another bullet brings a lead singer to his knees. There's a hole in his chest, but he reaches toward the scattering crowd, arms extended, as if he's trying to say something. I needed to be alone. I went upstairs and locked myself in the bathroom. I sat on the floor and waited for the unsettling visions to subside. Then I turned on the shower. Usually I loved to sing while I washed. I belt out tunes, lyrics half-remembered, the sound of my voice obscured by the rush of water and the echo of the ceramic tiles. But this time I remained under the pelting stream until it ran ice cold, until my fingerprints vanished in the folds of puckering skin. I only opened my mouth to let it fill with water, letting it overflow until it felt like I was about to choke. Day nine. Bands were being shot in the middle of their performances all across the country. The noise duo at the loft party in the Pacific Northwest. The garage rockers at the tavern in the New England suburbs. The jam band in the auditorium on the edge of the Midwestern Prairie. The bluegrass revivalists at the coffee house in the Deep South. There was never any fanfare. The killers simply walked into the clubs, took out their weapons, and started firing. Everybody was slow to call it an epidemic. They didn't want to believe that these deaths were connected. I tried to discuss it with my coworkers at the diner, but they reacted with raised eyebrows and sideways stares, treating me like the customer who only ordered glasses of chocolate milk and claimed that birds were trying to communicate with him. They keep following me, he'd say. They never shut their filthy mouths. I kept my ideas to myself even though it was clear that the killers weren't acting in isolation. It was as if they'd all been infected by the same idea. They seemed to be obeying the same subconscious marching orders. Somehow I knew each act of violence was a prelude to another. The night before each new shooting, I'd find myself closing the curtains throughout the house and pacing figure eights in the bedroom carpet without understanding why. These events seemed like something plucked from my most disturbing daydreams. Whenever I thought about the bodies of the dead musicians, my mind went blank. Was there some kind of message? I blew the dust off my old tarot deck. I laid a black cloth on the kitchen table, cut the cards, and arranged them. Each arcanum was illustrated with lurid lurid gothic lines. No matter how many times I shuffled them, I was always confronted by the catastrophic image of the tower. Lightning striking a stone structure, fire leaping from the windows, human figures tumbling through space. It felt like a spell had been cast, giving shape to something formless floating in the air. Part of me worried that somehow I had unleashed it, as if I had accidentally uttered an incantation in my sleep. So, Jeff, that gives us a sense of the violence and how you portrayed it in the book. I wanted to ask you about some other pieces of the book here. Structurally, you've got, you've got these little um, 
sort of side interludes that uh, that you do um, from time to time. T- talk about that a second. What what inspired that? Yeah, so part of it was, um, so the book starts with this epidemic of killings across the country, and then the um, the killings wind down, and the epidemic um, seems to end, and we stay in the town of Arcadia, and there's, um, what happens is that there's a invitation for a, a band to play a tribute concert to those who've been killed in Arcadia, and the band is trying to decide whether they want to do that or not, and um, uh, afraid that the epidemic might not be over. And so it sort of, uh, it alternates, the book alternates a bit between Zenny's point of view and Florian's point of view. And I thought as a way to sort of punctuate that, um, it'd be nice to have some interludes. It would almost serve like a musical function, a little rest between them. And there's these sections uh, called The Birds Mm -hmm. that are uh, these sort of like little prose poems about uh, about birdsong that also... That also relate relate back to the story. Birds, sort of birds, bird song, all of that plays an important part, sort of throughout the book. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the dream sequence on side B. We're going to uh, find out how Jeff joined the band and uh, hear a little bit of his music, and uh, then we're going to get some of Jeff's writing advice. Although you might find a bit of humor in what he has to say. Oh, and also the author to author segment. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Hey listeners, I've got some news about the podcast and some events that are happening this month. Would you like to attend a unique book event at Park Road Books? I'd like to watch a live production of this literary podcast. Would you like to hear Martin Clark, an author who's been praised by Entertainment Weekly as our best legal thriller writer, read and discuss his new book, The Substitution Order? You can do all three beginning at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, July 17th at Park Road Books in a live production of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. We've also got another live event that will be held at the Charlotte Museum of History on Saturday afternoon, July 27th at 3 p.m. Scott Hewler is the author. He's written seven books of nonfiction on everything from the death penalty to bikini waxing, from NASCAR racing to the stealth bomber. For such newspapers as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Los Angeles Times, and a number of magazines as well. Come watch this podcast and learn about Hewler's journey, where he traveled by foot and canoe along the same route taken by John Lawson in 1700 to explore the Carolinas. The book is the chronicle of Hewler's unlikely voyage, revealing what it's like to rediscover your own home. So if you like legal thrillers, join us on July 17th at 7 p.m. at Park Road Books. The book, The Substitution Order, is both wise and ingenious, and it's a wildly entertaining novel that will keep you guessing and rooting for the hero until the very last page. And if you like history, and if you like learning about what it's like to recreate a journey hundreds of years later, come out to the Charlotte Museum of History and hear Scott Hewlett talk about his book and the journey that helped chart the Carolinas in the 1700s. If you like both, Come on out. I'd love to see you. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with Jeff Jackson, author of Destroy All Monsters. Jeff, uh, we were talking about side A and side B, a very unconventional way to read a book, but but fun because it's like a seventh inning stretch, right? You get up, you turn the book over, and you start start on the backside. Um Tell us again a little bit, and we're going to lead into this dream sequence, which comes at the end. Um, what was in your mind about this side B? Uh, I, I know from my recollection, I see some things happening differently than happened on side A, at least in the minds of some of the characters. Yeah, no, no, it definitely, it's, uh, I really wanted it not to be just sort of seeing the same events from a different character's point of view. I really wanted it to sort of serve as like an alternate history mm-hmm. of the book. And so... Uh, of what you've read inside A, so the fates of certain characters are um, are switched, and even the genders of certain characters uh, are switched. And there's some key scenes that happen um, inside B that don't happen inside A that I thought were really sort of emotionally important uh, mm-hmm. to portray. There's a, there's a scene of a funeral. There's a scene of uh, some of the kids confronting one of the possible killers. 
Um, and so there's sort of like some very different dramatic things mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that happen, and it really offers sort of a, a mirror world version of what you read in uh, Inside A. And then as we get toward the end of Side B, uh, in the dream sequence, the theater's doors are flung open and you find yourself standing on the cusp of the entrance. The parade of killers is assembled behind you, clutching their weapons, their vacant expressions awaiting your signal. So talk about that. So <laughs> yeah, so side B sort of ends with a, uh-huh. with a dream, and it's a dream that has been, it's a dream that uh, both Sean and Zenny have both shared, and it's a dream that other characters in the book um, have shared as well, sort of this almost sort of communal dream. And so I wrote it in the uh, second person point of view from the you, sort of wanting it to also become the reader's dream. And in a certain way, it's, uh, I sort of thought of it as, uh, it's almost like the book is dreaming at this mm. point. And you're sort of entering the dream of the book along with the characters. And hopefully it sort of becomes everyone's dream. And it, it draws together a lot of imagery um, and even phrases that are in side A um, and some things you've encountered in side B and sort of brings them all together in this new sort of remixed uh, sort of dream state. So normally when you think about presenting a book <laughs> to a publisher or even one that you're going to publish yourself, you think about point of view, what am I going to choose, first person, third person, close, second person, whatever. You seem to have mixed a lot of different point of views in there. And, and you know, an editor could say, hey, that doesn't sound, I mean, did you have any pushback from all the different mechanisms you were using? I was I was lucky uh, that my editor uh, and the publishing house were very, uh, I think they really understood the book okay. and, were, and were really supportive of it. And so yeah. it was fine. And, and it was also, I mean, I, I tried to be really thoughtful about when I was changing point of view. Yeah. Um, and so side B does have some written in the second person point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also partly to really make it feel different from side A mm-hmm. too, you know. Mm-hmm. All right, so you write a book about uh, a punk rock band, and then you join a band. Yeah, so it was very <laughs> unexpected. I've never been in a band before, yeah. and uh, I had finished writing this book, and my friend uh, Jeremy Fisher asked me if I would um, write some lyrics for some music that he had uh, he had written. And I said I would give it a try. I wasn't um, super enthusiastic about it, but I really liked Jeremy. So, um, And I w- actually wasn't able to do it. I wasn't able to... Uh, to write lyrics to sort of exactly fit what he had. Um, it was really difficult. It was like writing a crossword puzzle in a language I didn't know. But I was able to write this really some sort of very simple sets of lyrics and uh, was able to improvise melodies uh, over some music he had and we were able that way to sort of create a, a series of songs. And um, I was mainly initially writing them as something for Jeremy to sing, and after we'd done it for a while, Jeremy said, I don't really want to sing, and you've been singing these things, we've been creating them, so you should be you should be the singer. So um, Maybe I should have had you sing some of Destroy All Monsters. <laughs> no, 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 please. Uh, but uh, so yeah, so it's sort of the band uh, sort of formed out of that. The band is called Julian Calendar, so I'm one of the singers. Uh, there's another woman, uh, Hannah Hunley, who also sings. And, and you play here in Charlotte? We yeah. play here in Charlotte. We yeah. played a number of shows. We have uh, and uh, we recorded an album that is up on uh, Spotify and Bandcamp called Parallel Collage, and uh, can be downloaded or streamed for free. And we're actually we're working on a bunch of new recordings right now. All right, was there any hesitancy about being on stage with a punk rock band? After the story you told and Destroy All Monsters. Oh, certainly. <laughs> Absolutely. Did it you have a, this vision of someone walking in the door while you're up on stage? Yeah. Well, it was just a very, it's a strange thing. I mean, a, a number of the clubs in Destroy All Monsters are inspired by clubs in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, the, uh, one of the climactic scenes takes place in this club that's based on the Milestone here in Charlotte. And when we played our second show at the Milestone, it was very strange <laughs> yeah. to be stepping on that stage because when I had written the book, there was like a 0% chance that I'd ever be be performing music on that stage and it was odd to suddenly find myself in that position so your your lyrics we've got a couple of songs here we're going to play some some of in just a minute but uh, i'm looking at the lyrics of one of your songs silent spring you're kind of painting a dark landscape here it almost looks like if you could read it as a poem if you weren't singing it to some extent are you yeah that one that one's one of the you, more poetic ones i've written were you, were you were you a poet at one time or i was never a poet you're a playwright i'm right? a uh, yeah you're I've a re- novelist you're short stories not a poet not a poet but a songwriter now yeah yeah well i think songwriting is actually closer to theater because what really matters is how it sounds aloud um and it's not about how it you know works on the page and so i think my theater experience of sort of understanding what lines work coming out of actors' mouths has been really helpful for uh, for writing song lyrics. I mean, it almost sounds like Zini could be 
you know, the, the part of this particular song, there's a love that's shared and a love that's lost between the sharpest razor and the slenderest wrist. There's a pang of pain and a pang of bliss. I feel I'm becoming something new. Silent Spring. I mean, it, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah no, there's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely some of. Uh, you could see her personality in there yeah, for okay, sure, sort right. of especially especially in that uh, in that verse, yeah. Okay, um, tell us about the road because we're going to play that in just a minute. So that's actually the very first song that I created uh, with Jeremy, and it's something that sort of fell together very quickly. I was really interested in writing something that used as few words as possible to sort of convey something, um, and it's uh, it's a song about someone uh, driving. To go see uh, to go see someone that they uh, that they love and uh, just sort of finding themselves in a in a dark place while okay. doing it, let's yeah, play, both literally and metaphorically. Let's play a little bit of that. Jeff, there aren't too many lyrics in this particular song, right? No, no, it's very, it's very spare. Um, half past midnight and both headlights gone dead, but I'm driving, but I'm driving anyway. The road isn't dark enough for me. And then you repeat that refrain, right? Yeah. And the road that leads me to you. What, what were you thinking about when you wrote this? Uh, I was thinking about... Uh I I, was, I had been actually driving and seen someone at night driving with their both their headlights <laughs> out, <laughs> thinking like it's a rather alarming image. But so, it, so maybe the DMV could use this as a public yeah, service announcement. But, yeah. an, but an interesting one. But I, I like the idea of um, you know being desperate to see someone and uh, and driving under those conditions and this idea that you know it's dark, but even that darkness isn't enough. That sort of like maybe you're going to see someone or do something that you know you shouldn't be doing but you're sort of like you're embracing the that darkness and you're instead of being afraid of it you're actually wanting more of it all right tell us about lithuania we'll play a little bit of that so lithuania um was inspired by some friends and some uh, friends parents this uh, sort of idea of coming uh leaving your home country and uh coming to another place and having been in that new place for so long that uh, that sort of your culture and your language that you originally came from starts to feel foreign to you mm. and starts to feel almost inaccessible to you. Sing 
Okay, having just heard that song, Jeff, you've got this refrain in here, single file, single file, home is the new exile. Talk about that. Uh, well, I think that, to me, that's sort of related uh, to this idea of, you know, your new home and uh, immigrating from someplace and feeling like you're in exile, but also to the idea of... Uh, I think so much of what's happened in this country where suddenly you start to feel like the country um, that you thought you knew has changed around you so much that you feel like you're in exile in your own uh, your own place that felt like home. Now, do you have any desire to go back to New York? Or are you comfortable being here in Charlotte? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do. I do miss New York at times for yeah. sure. But so I, short I, trips are fine. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, the nice thing about doing uh, theater up in New York is I've been able to go uh, go up for a few weeks at a time and get my New York fix, and then come back here. All right. Well, now we're going to do something, Jeff. We call the author to author segment. We have a couple of authors from previous seasons who have a few questions. I'm going to throw at you. Great. Um, Paul Krzyzewski. Short story writer and a poet, he's won several awards with his writing. Uh, he has a couple of questions here. He says, the places we live can affect our writing in profound ways. How have the places you've lived shaped your writing? Yeah, I think they, I think sort of the different landscapes I've lived in have definitely had a really profound impact um, on my writing. Um, both, I, I, when I lived in New York, one of the places I lived was in Dumbo, uh, in this Vinegar Hill area, which was really this area that was really run down and full of, um, like, rotting cobblestone streets and abandoned factories and things like that. And it was just really actually, like, an incredibly beautiful place. And I know that that, like, has seeped into, uh, seeped into my writing. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Aruba, which is a really uh, sort of desert um, sort of landscape of an island apart from the beaches and I know that that landscape has a lot to do with mm. you know has sort of seeped into my writing as well a lot of my uh, extended family comes from uh, Appalachia and comes from the mountains so mm. I know that sort of the woods and the mountains right. have also played an important part in in my writing you had a scene in the woods and destroy all monsters yeah. right right yeah 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 there are two <laughs> scenes in the woods and yeah. destroy all monsters for sure yeah. <laughs> yeah so I know that that's had a powerful pull on my imagination yeah. Uh, Paul also asks, is there a particular author or authors that have most influenced your style? I mean, there's a, there's a couple. Uh, one would be uh, Don DeLillo. I really love the way that he writes, uh, that he writes sentences um, and just sort of the way he's able to take things that are happening and current events and, and twist them into stories that feel somewhat timeless. Um, the writer Dennis Cooper is another big influence, just the way he really compresses his prose and the way he's able to make simple sentences, make them profound. Like he's able to get uh, a lot of meaning out of very sort of seemingly simple phrases from the mm. way he puts them together. And there's this Hungarian writer, this woman, Agoda Kristoff, and the way she um, structures her books um, is, has been real influential on me, particularly for Destroy All Monsters. Mm. So I have another author here, author Gary Powell. He, his work can be read online and in print in many literary journals, and he's 
Also, his first novel was called Lucky Bastard, published by Main Street Rag, and he's got a collection out called Getting Even and Other Stories. Gary has a couple of questions here, and one of them is, when was the first time you introduced yourself as a writer, and how did it feel? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think for most writers, it's sort of a, you know, it's a slippery, it's an odd, awkward thing to, to do. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't actually remember, I think because I probably with like, it sort of went in a faints and starts like I'd sometimes introduce myself as a writer and then like for months I wouldn't again. And then, you know, then try it out, you know, as a, as a writer and then, you know, back off, uh, you know, I mean, in some ways, it wasn't until uh, until the first book, Miracle Poro, was published that I felt comfortable doing okay. that. Uh, the short stories don't count. Huh? Well, you know, it's sort of what counts in your mind and what you're yeah. willing to say aloud. Okay, all right. Well, that that kind of leads into another question he has, and is how do or how you how did you deal with rejection? How do you how do you, how do you deal with that? Oh yeah, well, I mean, rejection I think is constant, sort of no matter what stage you're at in your career. No like, matter what kind of great reviews you've gotten on a previous. Oh yeah, you know. no rejection comes along. Um, what does it do to your psyche as a writer? Well, it's really it's really hard. I mean, actually, Destroy All Monsters, even after the success, Miracorpora did pretty well. It was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, but it mm-hmm. took a long time to find a publisher for Destroy All Monsters. Mm-hmm. Like the success of that first book uh, didn't to- didn't make the path to publication for Destroy All Monsters mm-hmm. a whole lot easier, which I was really surprised to find. Mm-hmm. And it was really just trying to dig in and um, try and have faith in the book and have faith in the project. But, you know, it's it's tough. It's definitely, uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing. Last question from Gary. Where and when is your favorite place and time to write? Uh, that's a good question. I tend to I tend to work better sort of in the late afternoon for some reason, um, and I really I've gone away to a number of uh, writing colonies over the years and residencies, and there's one in Virginia in particular that I really enjoy writing at. There's something um, about being able to sort of sink into the writing over a couple of weeks that makes it really really enjoyable. All right, Jeff. Well, one of the things we do on the show sometimes is. Uh, have the authors dispense writing advice, and uh, I think you've got a little bit uh, you're going to share with with the listeners here. Uh, so I was asked to put together some writing advice for uh, for a site called uh, the Fanzine, and so this uh, somewhat tongue in cheek uh, is what I came up with here. That's a little introduction. Everybody hates writing advice, but people can't seem to stop giving it. Clearly, I'm no better myself. When Flannery O'Connor was asked if she worried that writing programs were stifling writers, she responded. They don't stifle enough of them. There's many a bestseller that could have been prevented by a good teacher. And so in that spirit, uh, these, uh, these are uh, my writing tips. And so they're, uh, they're numbered here. There are uh, 25 of them. Number one, try not to start. Number two, the best idea is no idea. Number three, misunderstand yourself. Number four, every sentence is a new doubt. Number five, follow the breadcrumb of false memories. Number six, avoid telling, avoid showing. Now you're getting somewhere. Number seven, cultivate characters who will lie to you, or better yet, lie to themselves. Number eight, the best narrator is one who is almost inaudible. Transcribe the murmurs that you can't quite hear. Number nine, study structure by falling asleep in the middle of movies. Number 10, wall yourself inside the story, each word a new brick, oxygen running low. Number 11, the last sentence of your story should echo back to the first sentence of the very first thing you ever wrote. Number 12, epiphany is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Number 13, become bored by your own dreams. Number 14, more inauthenticity. Number 15, when you finally reach the truth, then you'll know you've been heading in the wrong direction. Number 16, treat the reader like a beloved relative on life support. Prepare to pull the plug. Number 17, ghostwrite yourself. Number 18, disappear into your work, 
than make your work disappear. Number 19. Avoiding adjectives is good. Avoiding adverbs is better. Avoiding words is best. Number 20. The destination doesn't count, and the journey doesn't exist. Number 21. Feel empty so your reader doesn't have to. Number 22. Is there enough absence? Number 23. Delete the first and last sentence of the story. Then delete everything in between. Don't worry, you're almost done. Number 24. Put no words where there are no words. And number 25. Publish only as a last resort. All right, Jeff, I'm over here trying not to laugh as you're reading, reading this segment. You know, we've got so many self-help <laughs> books out there. We've got so many books teaching us how to write. And finally, we've got something that, that's really helpful. <laughs> right, right. I, tr- I tried to make these very practical. <laughs> you, you'll, ne- you'll never have any stress as a writer if you follow all of these, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, try not to start. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I like this uh, because there's all these uh, articles out there about, well, should you – show too much should you tell shoot you shouldn't show, you should you know whatever back yeah, and yeah, forth yeah. and you said avoid telling, avoid showing now you're getting somewhere right <laughs> right know? right avoid them both you know, just avoid, be safe, yeah. avoid them both but and then you go into one of your kind of you know mere corporate kind of mentalities wall yourself inside the store each word is a new brick oxygen running low you know right as if it's the last thing you can do and yeah then, yeah yeah and then as you get toward the end uh is delete the first the last sentence and every, have you ever had that feeling you felt, like, in you, felt, yeah. you felt like you, know, you needed to delete the first and the last and everything in between I, I've definitely I've definitely had that feeling yeah yeah and there's some days uh, there's some days writing where the uh, the word count ends up uh, in the negative and yeah. uh, you know sometimes that's the it's the best possible outcome yeah um, this was interesting ghostwrite yourself <laughs> <laughs> uh, feel empty so your reader doesn't have to. Do you think writers sometimes feel empty as if they don't know whether people are listening? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, But I do think sometimes people try and uh, sometimes feel too much on the page, perhaps. And this number 25, it's it's kind of a – because of the struggle that writers, and you know it firsthand, that that writers go through to put together a novel, you know, just the heart and the time and the sweat and the tears – Publish only as a last resort. Sometimes people probably think that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but on the on the flip side, if there were some uh, advice that you would give from your own experience that wasn't, uh, as you say, tongue-in-cheek, do you have just one or two nuggets uh, to share from your own experience? Well, I don't I mean the one of the problems with writing advice and one of the, way, one of the reasons I sort of wrote that column. Right. So it, much it of it just, just sounds so banal, you know, exactly. like, oh, you should read more. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. should read more. Of course you should read more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, uh, you know, well, th- things, like, uh, things like that. I mean. Well, what, what advice did you give to yourself? Do you have sort of a, something you follow that keeps you in the game, that keeps you fresh, that keeps you thinking about I mean, this thing. I mean, one of the things I try that's really one of the questions I try and ask myself when I'm reading my own work is just really simple. Is like, am I bored? Hmm. Like, in really trying, like, not to find what I'm writing too interesting to try and convince my, you know, try and let the writing sort of really right. pull me along and to let myself be like easily bored by what I write so that I can improve it and make it better and hopefully make it as interesting as possible for the reader and you know always have a reason for the reader to want to turn the page. Or flip the book over. Or right? flip, or flip the book over and upside down, and read the, you know, and read the second, uh, exactly. read, read the other side of it. Yeah. Well, Jeff, your writing is anything but boring. It's uh, it's engaging. It pulls you in, and uh, you have a great literary quality to your work. Tell us, tell us where we can find your books. So, uh, destroy all monsters uh, can be found uh, at Park Road Books and yeah. at uh, at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any place uh, books are sold. Same thing with my first book, uh, Miracorpora. Uh, the novella Novi Sad is actually only available um, through the publisher, who's a publisher called the publisher is called Kitty Punk. So, if you put in Novi Sad and Jeff Jackson, it'll come up, and you order it directly from his site. 
uh, from the Kitty Punk website. And uh, he's actually based in France, but he ships overseas and he takes PayPal and credit cards and all that sort so of stuff. So you make it harder to get so people really want it. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a little it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit more of an art object. Yeah. It's printed yeah. on blue paper and it, yeah. it features some original uh, artwork by uh, the artist Michael Salerno. So it is, and it's a limited edition too. So uh, so if you're interested, uh, yeah, it is a little bit harder to get, but. Uh, for those who for those who want it, it's accessible. And you have a website? Yeah, I have a website called uh, deathofliterature.com. You're just a just an optimistic, happy guy here. Right? I am. Well, you know, the uh, I, I was very unoptimistic about how many Jeff Jacksons have already claimed website domains. It's oh, really yeah. like you have to be Jeff Jackson 145. Yeah, dot edu. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just sort of <laughs> insane. So I would have been happy to be a Jeff Jackson writer dot com or or something like that. But just about every permutation <laughs> of my name has been taken. Well, now a lot of times writers don't like to talk about what they're working on now, but you, you're kind of still in the middle of promoting Destroy All Monsters, but do you have some ideas? of? Yeah, I'm, I'm work, I am working on something new. I have about, uh, you know, in draft, about 80 pages of something new. Okay. Um, right. And it's, uh, it's a bit different from Destroy All Monsters and what came before it. Not, not totally, but... Um, Always pressing the envelope, right? Yeah, the edges. Well, know, yeah, yeah, just trying to, uh, you know, trying to keep myself interested yeah. and sort of see, yeah. where, see where things are leading. And each book sort of has different demands, different mm -hmm. things that it seems to, seems to need from me, so... Now, where can people listen to your band? So Julian Calendar, um, our record can be found on a Bandcamp and can also be found on Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, and we, uh, we're sort of on a little hiatus right now for a recording, but starting in May and June, we'll be playing around Charlotte uh, at clubs like uh, Snug Harbor and the Milestone and Petra's and uh, places like that. All right, well, by the time this uh, episode comes out in May or June, they'll, they'll hear that and know where to go. Right? All right, yeah. perfect. Hey, so. hey, Jeff, thanks a lot for spending time with us today. Oh, it's yeah. been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet Greg Gerald, pastor, community activist, saxophonist, and author of A Riff of Love, a melodic true story of his life in Enderley Park, a Charlotte community misunderstood and often ignored by the movers and shakers in the Queen City. It's not a book to be taken lightly, nor one that a white person can read without becoming a bit uncomfortable at times. And Greg pushes us in a good way to see race and poverty in ways that we weren't taught, and he invites every one of us to walk the streets of his neighborhood with new eyes. If you liked our show, please tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>